Chris, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 131. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now today we've got a Q&A lined up for you, so we're going to jump straight into the questions. This first one, Jack, it's got to do with macro tracking. So this question asks, how can I transition away from tracking? This is a interesting one, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to probably dig a little bit deeper into macro tracking in general and why some people should be doing it or shouldn't or isn't necessary for you. And let's touch on first, like let's try and answer the question directly. So how can people transition away from tracking? Mm-hmm. Because it is interesting because certainly as coaches, you will go through different phases with your clients of initially, it's actually very beneficial to teach someone the ropes and actually teach them how to accurately track their nutrition using an app like MyFitnessPal or like Chronometer. But then as they continue along their journey, you might actually also teach them, all right, how do we transition out of this? Because for the majority of people, the ultimate goal isn't to be tracking and weighing your food to the gram until the day that you die, right? You're not Mm. supposed to be doing it forever. It has a time and a place. Yeah, I completely agree. And for 99% of people, it's just not necessary to track Mm. all the time. And I think some people such as ourselves, like we have very specific body composition goals. We work from home. It's very easy for us to track. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for us to hit specific numbers. And I would also say we have a very healthy relationship with it too. Mm. We purely just see it as a tool, but we don't see it as something that we are obliged to do or something that holds us back from Mm. living life to its fullest. (laughs) And like, even if we weren't tracking right now, like we would, it wouldn't really change anything. Like... Tracking just, it for us, it takes a few minutes each day. You just plug in the variables and that's it. Mm-hmm. But I think if someone does want to transition away from tracking, like there's obviously multiple approaches and there's sort of like that cold turkey mm-hmm. approach, just like anything. And then there's also the more gradual approach as well. So I think in most circumstances, I probably would recommend the more gradual approach. So Me too. for example, if you usually track seven days a week, maybe just start one day a week where you don't track and the same advice for nutrition still applies like it doesn't doesn't change so if you've been tracking for a relatively long time or even if you've just like just have the developed the skills of tracking in general you literally just follow the same protocol you usually do but you just don't track it so mm-hmm. most people eat very similar foods every day so if you have some oats for breakfast and some rice for lunch and then a stir fry for dinner then have that same thing, just don't track it and eyeball the usual amounts that you will be having. Mm -hmm. And I can pretty much guarantee you that you'll achieve pretty much the same results. Exactly, but then tracking can also be a phenomenal tool as well. For example, if you're going out to a meal, let's say you're getting sushi one night and you're like, okay, I wanna factor this into my day because energy balance still matters to me. You could be like, okay, I know on average my dinner each night's probably roughly between 500 to 700 calories. Let's see, you know, I could plug in a few numbers into my fitness pal to see how much on average sushi that would add up to, just so that things could potentially balance out. Aren't you still tracking then though? Exactly, so use it as a tool when it's appropriate to Mm. use it or not. But 
I think that's fantastic advice to definitely use a more gradual approach rather than just going cold turkey. Mm. And there's a lot of ways that you could go about that gradual approach. You could certainly go from, yeah, tracking six days of the week and then you don't track for one day. Or for example, maybe if you're eating four meals per day, you track three of those and then one is an untracked meal. Or Mm. something else that I really like to recommend as well is still tracking the most energy dense items that you're eating. So for example, let's say that you were making up a meal, you'd want to track the most energy dense items in that meal. So for example, let's say that you're making some oats for breakfast. You might still want to track the oats and you might still want to track how much peanut butter you're Mm. using, but perhaps you could just go off the scoop of protein from the bag and you know, you could throw a few berries on there, like pay less attention to the things that are less energy dense, Mm. but still take into account the things that are quite energy dense. And that's why if you take a look at the NRVs or the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, uh, you'll see straight away that they recommend like cup sizes, they'll recommend the plate model, Mm -hmm. they'll recommend, okay, have a, a serving of protein the size of your palm, for example. And I think that can I think for people who are invested into more fitness and body composition that's less useful because mm. often we'll need to eat more food either more food because we need to be gaining weight or eat less food for people who are in a in a deficit mm-hmm. but ultimately I think that really can be useful but individualized for you so for example if I was to steer away from tracking and what I would probably do is be, okay, each meal, I know I need some protein, I need some carbohydrates, and I need some dietary fat as mm-hmm. well. And then probably in one or two of those meals, I'll also have some fruit to get my fruit, and I'll also have quite a decent amount of vegetables. Mm-hmm. So for my protein, I'm going to start having around a palm size worth of protein. For carbohydrates, I'll probably do a full hand's worth of carbohydrates. For fat, I might do a thumb's size of, of dietary fat, mm-hmm. so like a thumb's Uh, size of nut butter and from there i'll see how my body weight responds and i'll follow that approach for each meal and then if need be i'll either taper those amounts up or down in order to base that off and just because you stop tracking your food doesn't mean you need to stop tracking your weight unless of course you get some emotional negative feedback from tracking your weight but i think that if you're not tracking your food then tracking your body weight it's so easy even just stepping on the scale once a week the same day can be very useful to see, okay, I'm not tracking my food, but how is this affecting my body weight? Mm-hmm. Like if your body weight's going up, obviously you're in a slight energy surplus. If your body weight's going down, obviously you're in a, you're in a deficit. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of different aspects to tracking. Like I almost view tracking as an umbrella term, but there's so many different components to it. So for example, going all in with tracking, you would have very specific macronutrient targets. You would have a food scale. You would have sources of food that you're weighing on that food scale to the gram, and they're also reliable food sources. You'd be using an app like MyFitnessPal, and you would also be using reliable food entries. So there's so many different aspects to it, but perhaps like you actually gradually transitioning away from tracking could actually mean you don't necessarily track things in MyFitnessPal, but you still weigh things on the scale just to ensure Mm. that, okay, I'm still meeting my fruit and vegetable requirements. This is still an appropriate amount of peanut butter to eat. (laughs) Mm. Because if you, again, go cold turkey and just 
open up the pantry and just eat whatever you want, start throwing things into bowls and stuff. We especially know that some of these foods, like, you know, if your eyeballs are wrong, scooping out peanut butter, it could be 20 grams, it could easily be 50 grams, you know? Even me as an experienced tracker with my oats, like I could put 100 grams in there, I could easily put 150 grams in there. That's 150% of the energy. Yeah. So I, I still think that even if you're transitioning away from actually plugging in all these numbers into the app, I still think that actually using a food scale to your advantage, at least for some items, can certainly still be very advantageous. Yeah, I know for me personally, if I stop tracking, I would definitely undereat, mm-hmm. not necessarily overeat, because I would just be fairly cautious of naturally as a person, I would I would rather undereat than mm-hmm. or my my the emotional side of me or psychological side of me would rather undereat than overeat. Yeah, and I would probably pick just very whole food choices, mm-hmm. which would be low in energy. And and also you'd probably have an even higher protein diet because yeah. let's admit it, guys, like protein, when you get it from animal sources, it's almost like a pathetic portion size. Like if you actually get 20 grams worth of protein from chicken breast, you're like, this is literally only a few bites of chicken breast. Mm. Like wouldn't mind a little bit more. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> But man, like tracking for a lot of people, especially people I've worked with, it really actually helps them develop an incredibly healthy relationship with food. And it takes your level of knowledge and understanding of nutrition literally to another level. It Mm. really helps you understand what are you actually putting into your body on a daily basis. And from a lot of... Personally, I just think that it's, it's, it's just such debate about tracking when there doesn't need to be like Mm. let what if we applied it to everything else Mm. like if you don't want to track then don't track if you Mm. don't like tracking then don't track yeah if you like tracking then track if it doesn't interfere with you psychologically then then go for it yeah and it's the same with things like finances as well like if if you would rather have someone else handle your finances you don't want you want to be a bit oblivious to it then go for it, get an accountant and let them do everything and give you advice. Yeah. Um, but if you want to take it on board yourself, you might do some trading yourself. You might get zero and look after your own accounting. You might do your own tax return. Mm-hmm. Like it, we can make those sort of comparisons to pretty much everything in life. Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Yeah, I certainly think there's a time and a place and from a lot of other coaches that I talk to and that I listen to, they're also under the same impression that it's just so remarkably beneficial for someone to at least go through a period of tracking their food, at least for a few months, because just dedicating yourself to that for a few months, it can completely change the way that you approach nutrition and eating and making informed decisions for the rest of your life, because it gives you another level and element of education. So it's pretty freaking phenomenal, to be honest. And again, there's a time and a place, but just like you said, it can be applied to anything. So you're always going to go through periods of having to learn intensely a new skill. So Mm. for example, a lot of us, we probably drive cars. And remember when, when we were getting our learner's license, I know here in Australia, you have to clock up like a hundred hours that of course, none of us forge, (laughs) right? (laughs) 
but a hundred hours of driving and you try to get that in between your 16th and your 17th birthday so you can get that pea plate like it's very intense and it's quite overwhelming it's quite frustrating during that period of trying to learn this new skill but then you learn how to drive and then whether or not you choose to buy a car straight away or you wait a few years like that knowledge and that skill is ingrained in you so then a few years later you're like man you know i'm graduated from uni now like it's probably about time i buy myself a car. I'm not going to be catching the bus or the train anymore. Or someone's like, hey, can you drive my car for me? You have that knowledge base and you know how to because you invested yourself prior. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's always dangers with driving a car as well. You could get in an accident, could run out of fuel on the highway. Yeah. Or (laughs) you could just get to where you want to go, right? (laughs) Like look on the bright side of life. (laughs) Anyway, I guess that's our answer to how to transition out of tracking. All right, so this next question, this one says, how significantly does eating out once a week set you back from your fat loss goals? So I think it's interesting that the question asker here is like automatically assuming that by eating out, that's it, you're gonna be set back. It's gonna be at least a solid week of extra dieting to Mm -hmm. make up for that. And I think it comes back to having these like preconceived notions of, like it reminds me of good food versus bad food or eating out automatically equals a loss in progress, Mm -hmm. for example. And it's kind of also like a deload in training. Yeah, just because you're taking a deload, that means you've lost progress and you've gone backwards. But that's just really not the case. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying with the macros. It's, It's really just energy balance. So as long as you make the necessary adjustments whilst eating out and and factor in energy balance so that you're still in an energy deficit that won't really restrict your progress at all. And even there's just so many different ways to go about it. Yeah, without a doubt. So it shouldn't significantly set you back at all if Mm. you have a plan in place. And how exactly would someone get a plan in place? Let's say that someone does wanna go out on Friday night to grilled with their friends. Like how would they plan for that and how would that not set them back? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting and loaded question because there's a lot of different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Some people have, again, very strong opinions about the way they like this done. And yeah, I won't beat around the bush. Like my favorite way personally, and if I think that a client is on a similar train of thought to me in their approach to nutrition, then I'll also recommend this to them as well. But let's say naturally when you go out to a dinner, or to something in the evening, a restaurant, it's the goal of that restaurant in order to make the food taste as great as possible. Mm -hmm. And that means by incorporating that extra tastiness, usually it's gonna be a bit more calories than what you're used to, especially if you're on a quite a low calorie diet. And not just a few guys, this is, (laughs) all right, I'm gonna tell you, I worked in a restaurant for five years. I worked in a Thai restaurant for four years and an Italian restaurant for one year. And without a doubt, The number one goal of those chefs is to make you eat more food. (laughs) And even a meal that you think should be relatively low in energy, oh, I'm really sorry to break it to you. So for example, if you go out to a Thai restaurant and you order a cashew nut stir fry, what comes out on your plate looks like just a bunch of vegetables, a few shards of chicken and a few cashew nuts, right? So you might try to just log that in MyFitnessPal as two cups of steamed vegetables, 150 grams of chicken breast and 20 grams of cashew nuts. And let's factor in a little bit of oil, maybe 10 or 15 milliliters of oil. 
that's where it's really gonna get you is the oil. So I'm telling you, at the back of these kitchens, okay, so these chefs, they have these huge woks that they'll cook your meal up in, but they also have these large cylinders that, you know when you put like a champagne bottle in um, one of those big metal containers oh, yeah, yeah, with yeah, the yeah. ice? So it's like an ice, ice bucket. Yeah, so it's a, they have ice buckets, but they're oil buckets. So they use these ice buckets to put all of the vegetable oil in. Then they'll get their huge ladle, right? And they'll scoop it into the bucket. They'll pour it into the big wok. N equals one. It's one restaurant. Oh, yeah, but... Why wouldn't any restaurant do this, right? But anyway, so I'm telling you, like, I've seen these guys do it hundreds of times, probably over a thousand times. I've seen so many stir fries cooked. But I'm telling you, those huge ladles, probably like 10 tablespoons of oil. Mm. No flipping joke. 10 tablespoons of so oil in your stir fry. So I'm telling you, these meals are a hell of a lot more energy dense than you think. Yeah, well, please don't scare too many people away I know, from no, Thai food, amazing, man. So <laughs> freaking good. Uh, but I'm just telling you, pre-plan and maybe overestimate times mm. two or three. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, getting back to what I do. So I personally just try and hit my nutrient targets throughout the day and try and keep it fairly like lower energy than mm. what you might do. So, and this is assuming someone is on a more moderate to low calorie diet. Like if if I'm on my current calories right now, which is almost 4,000, then I'm not gonna be too worried at all. Like I'm just gonna eat relatively normally. I usually reserve about 1,000 calories for dinner anyway. I'll just choose a choice that I think lines up well with 1,000 calories. But if, you, if for example, you are on 1,500 calories a day and you wanna have something like a 750 to 1,000 calorie meal, you're gonna to have to make some adjustments throughout the day. So. What I typically do is stick to my protein sources. So I might have two to three protein sources before dinner. Uh, and one of those or two of those, I'll have some like low calorie vegetables or uh, leafy green vegetables. And then I'll have some fruit at my other one. And mm. that way you take off your fruit, take off your vegetables. Some of those protein sources could come from low fat dairy as well. You've tipped off your dairy and then you've, you're in for dinner and you've pretty much set yourself up for being able to incorporate something that's uh, you're not going to be just ordering a side salad for dinner, which is very sad. Uh, you're going to be able to eat something a bit more moderate. Exactly. So you go into that meal with a plan, you execute, and it's not going to deviate you away from achieving results across the week whatsoever. And something else that you could also even consider is potentially lowering the calorie intake from the next day as well, just slightly, or even the day before, if you wanted to allocate more calories to that one day. So if you took like, if you, let's say that you were going out on a Friday night, you could take 100 to 200 calories away from Thursday, 100 to 200 calories away from your Saturday, put that into your Friday. So then depending on your total daily energy intake, those meals at breakfast and lunch didn't have to be as scarce. Mm -hmm. And then you could still enjoy that dinner out. But there's so many different ways to go about it. But ultimately, not winging it is the best way yeah. to, uh, to actually have success in that circumstance, without a doubt. And I recommend that my clients do a lot of the same things along those lines as well. It just depends on the circumstance. Hmm. But this is again why tracking food and actually having an understanding of what is in your food is just such an advantage in these circumstances. Yeah. I do like to give both sides of the coin though. And the reason why our method potentially gets a little bit of flack is because by restricting yourself throughout the day, 
you are naturally going to be a bit hungrier leading up to that evening meal, Mm -hmm. especially already being in a deficit. So, I mean, for me personally right now, and I'm sure for you, like you could probably restrict yourself throughout the day and eat like mainly protein, fruit and veg, and you wouldn't be that hungry for dinner still, but just because we're low in food focus, we've got plenty of uh, healthy body fat at the moment. Yeah, easy. But in prep, it would have been a different story. Yeah, in prep, it's a very... Or in a dieting phase, it is a different story. Mm. So potentially not eating much up until dinner, you're going to be ravenous for dinner. Potentially that sets you up for overeating. But then also there's that argument of... Why are you restricting yourself? And it's like, well, throw back the argument. You're indulging at night, dude. Mm. And if you give, you got to take, right? Make things balance out. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) And come on, we're talking about like a 12-hour feeding window here, okay? Mm. (laughs) Really splitting hairs. (laughs) Hey, guys. Just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Great. Well, I think we've answered that. So what's the next one? Okay. So this next one, it says, how many calories are you guys on right now? And how do you know when to increase your calories? There's definitely a theme for this podcast, (laughs) isn't there? (laughs) So if you want to know all about our training and nutrition, we recommend that you listen into Roads 2023, Mm -hmm. which is coming out every second week at the moment. And we always discuss our personalized nutrition and training in there. But we can answer it now. So I'm on about 38, 20 calories on a training day. Mm-hmm. And that's encompassing about 275 grams of protein, 500 grams of carbs, and 80 grams of fat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's it for me pretty much. Yeah. And for me, my calories right now, I'm on around 2,800 calories, give or take. Like, believe it or not, your girl does not hit her macros to the gram <laughs> in the improvement season. I usually like to give myself like a plus or minus five gram range. So you're eating around a thousand extra calories than me. Yep. Gosh dang. Yeah, I only weigh about 20 kilos more. Only, (laughs) only 20 extra kilograms of tissue on you. (laughs) Balances out. Yeah, especially considering we're about the same height as Mm. well. If we actually divided our calories by our body weight, it might actually even out to be pretty close mm. to the same amount per kilogram. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We'll have to check that out on a calculator sometime. But anyway, that's how much we're consuming. But the other part of the question, how do you know when you should eat more? So first, do your current goals dictate you that you want to be gaining weight? Mm. So that's something to decide because yeah, that'll ultimately dictate, are you trying to maintain weight, lose weight, gain weight? And For me, for both of us, we're trying to gain weight at the moment Mm -hmm. at roughly 1% of our body weight per month. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we take our weight every single morning. We get our weekly average. And if we're trying to gain, let's say I'm trying to gain a kilo of weight gain per month. Divide Mm -hmm. that by four for a month. We're looking at about 0.25 kilos of weight gain per week. And if, for example, I don't gain that 0.25 kilos in two weeks so like for two weeks continuously then that's when i'll probably increase my macros but i am working with a coach at the moment so lucky me i don't have to worry about that yeah not at (laughs) all and so you guys can always just look at that data together but Mm. it is important to make the point that 
not everything's going to happen perfectly like you would like it to mm. mathematically on paper. Some weeks your weight is going to stay the exact same as the week prior. Some weeks your body might weight might spike up and jump up by half a kilogram, but then yeah. it starts, it stays stable. So things can certainly move in mm. jumps. And that's because every single day it's a little bit different, right? Even if you were doing the same amount of steps per day and you were doing the same training session, you had the same routine, whatever it may be, you're still burning more or less calories day to day, depending on even tiny little factors too. So your calorie amount that you actually require to maintain or gain or lose, like it's certainly a moving target. It is never static. And that's why it's so important to actually pay attention to those averages. Mm. I would say the more variable your weight is like day to day and week to week, I would probably even scale that up to like, instead of two weeks, more like four weeks. Mm -hmm. So like if at the end of the month you look at your weight and you've gained less than what you're aiming for, that's when you can potentially bump up for the following month. Yeah. Cause I know for me, for sure, it doesn't work out perfectly for me. Like mm. my weight likes to, I like to gain weight. I like to, <laughs> if it was up to me, it wouldn't happen this way, but hell <laughs> my body thinks something different, but my body general trends are that I gain weight in chunks and I lose weight in chunks. And sometimes you just have to ride that wave. So that's why Personally, I actually don't make adjustments unless necessary after I've got like two to three solid weeks of data. Mm. Yeah. All right. So we're actually speeding through these a little bit faster than normal. <laughs> do we have time for one more? We sure do. Okay. So this one says, what time do you prefer to work out on a usual day? On a usual day, I like to train around 9 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I think we're both fortunate that we can choose when we train we can schedule our work around our workouts. Oh boy, it's been a long time coming to be in this type <laughs> <Yeah>. of routine. <laughs> it certainly is. And I, in the past, probably up until midway through prep, maybe around, no, more than that, more like February or January. No, it was when we got Boston, which yeah. was on the 24th of January, I think. Mm -hmm. And so up until then, I've always been an afternoon trainer. So Back when I was at uni, I probably trained around like 4 p.m. Then I moved it slightly earlier to 2 p.m. And then when we moved in together in 2019, we probably trained like just after lunch, mm -hmm. like around 1 p.m. or so. And that stayed the same throughout most of prep as well. And then in prep, I just reached this point where it was honestly just really hard to train in the afternoons yeah. from a mental clarity point of view not necessarily clarity but more just motivation and mojo like i would get to that point in the day i'm like yeah i'm i'm ready to just relax uh, yeah. i'm not i don't have anything left to train at this point because it got to that point where we were like anticipating our training session mm. all day yeah which is very unproductive from a work standpoint as well like trying to sit at your desk and do something productive and no no the check the client stuff's very easy not in terms of workload but in terms of like to, to do that, it's easy. Uh, it's more so like the other things, like producing content. You're like, hmm, I'm meant to be producing content, but I'm just thinking about my workout. Mm -hmm. And by having our workout in the morning now, like we, we look forward to it, but we also get it done. We're at our peak energy levels. We're at our peak mojo mm -hmm. uh, to, to train. And I can't see myself changing that, to be honest, um, at, this, at this point in time. Yeah, I absolutely love training in the morning now. Mm. And I... 
too, I can't imagine going back to yeah. anything different. And it certainly has been a long time coming because I feel like all the way up until when we finally graduated from uni, prior to that, for those first like what 22 years of my life, I don't know, when did I start playing sports? Like four years old, <laughs> but it was always on someone else's schedule. You yeah. know, if you wanted to train, you had to do it at the crack of dawn. You had to be at the pool in the morning at 5 a.m. sort of thing, or you had to uh, do your soccer practice at night after the teachers finished, or, mm. you know, you had to be playing like at 6 or 7 p.m. at night and like all of these different things. You're always working on other people's schedules, especially at uni. Like I know that my training, it was not nearly as structured in terms of timing because, you know, sometimes you had to be at a compulsory prac or you had lectures on, or, you know, I worked at UQ sports, so I might've had a shift. So you always make it work and you always get your training in, but it is just a matter of getting it done when it fits in. It's not so much in your control of, Oh, five times a week. I'd like to train from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. And mm. I'd like to take my rest days every Wednesday and every Sunday. So now it's just this beautiful routine. But I feel like we've been working so hard to finally be in this position. And that's why we don't take it for granted. Like every morning, I feel like when we're walking to the gym, I'm just like, gosh, darn, I'm just in love with our lives. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I might even experiment with next prep is training even earlier in the morning. Like, mm -hmm maybe even seeing how I feel, but usually in prep, I wake up very energized. Whereas in the off season, I usually wake up a bit more sluggish. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more so to do, just do with body fat. But in prep, maybe experimenting with having a small amount of protein, small amount of carbohydrates, and then pretty much going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Like, would that be something you would ever consider? Uh to be honest, no. Like the reason why I actually love training in the morning so much uh, during prep in particular is because my appetite is actually generally highest in the morning. Mm. So for example, if I can have my breakfast at 7 a.m., but then I can have an hour to digest that food, have some pre-workout, go to the gym, do my thing. By the time I get home and have lunch between like 11.30 to 12, like it really helps to fill that gap. Mm. And then the rest of the day, you know, then we would usually have our third meal at 3 p.m. and then our dinner at 6 p.m. So it's kind of like the rest of the day. It's super productive with client work. It's very productive and just routine based. But uh, yeah, it, it just really helps me from an actually like controlling and managing my appetite training in the morning because we know exercise is an acute appetite suppressant. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, but I, I don't think I could probably be the kind of person who does, yeah, wake up and has a little snack, then trains, and then for the whole rest of the day, I, I almost feel like I would be a little bit actually more food focused because mm. that's the hardest thing. And we were even talking about this the other day, but like when you're in the improvement season, it's almost like time goes faster than it does in prep because mm. you're not thinking about food as much. And I feel like when you're in a dieting phase, especially chronically dieting for months, it's like just the clock slows down, you know, yeah. because you are just anticipating that next meal. You're like, okay, it's in two and a half hours. All right. It's in one and a half hours. Oh God, am I going to make it through this last half an hour sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. The thing that scares me most about prep, especially after last prep is terrifies you. <laughs> it does. No, it doesn't terrify me, but it, if I had to choose one thing that I like the least about prep or is the one thing that incentivizes me not to prep again, it's the training. And I just really don't like heading into a training session with 
that sort of anxiety and with knowing how tough it is going to be and how much I'm going to have to motivate myself to do a single rep. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately that's only from like, for me, it probably started around six, seven weeks out mm-hmm. uh, till the end, but I'm glad that's over. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what you mean. It's a complete mental battle, but sometimes mm. like you just have to follow the Nike slogan and just do it right. Mm. Like, don't think, just do. If you're like really psyching yourself up, going for a Bulgarian split squat or getting on a hack squat or something, you just got to be like, shut the hell up, get under that weight and just do it, right? You just got to start. Otherwise, yeah, man, like sometimes like your rest periods can just take so long because you're just like, you're like, you're just sitting on the bench. You're like, oh God, yeah. <laughs> please time go even slower. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that second set. Like it's so anxiety provoking. Mm. But then once you actually lift the weight, you realize you're like, man, I did build this up to be a lot more in my head than I thought mm, it would be. Maybe. I think so. <laughs> I, I can certainly make things seem a hell of a lot scary in my head than they actually are. Mm. Yeah. But the exact same goes for food on the flip side too. People build it up in their heads that, Oh my God, those post-show donuts, that post-show yeah. pizza, it's going to taste so freaking good. And yeah, well, no I would denying say the reverse, it. Like people are scared of dieting because of the hunger. Like that doesn't bother me anywhere near as much oh, as it's the inevitable. energy. Dude, you can be overweight and get hungry. It's normal to feel hungry. Mm. Yeah. But no, I think that if you build things up to be way too much in your head, like it, it kind of does hit you in reverse because yeah, with, with the food, right? If you build these things up to be just so freaking delicious and tasty, once you finally get to bite into them, like it's a bit underwhelming. You almost have to fake it, you know, like you bite into a donut and you're like, wow, I actually thought this was going to be an orgasm, but it's just like some dough. I think dough. that's just you there. Cause remember my <laughs> post-show video, like I took that first bite of baked oats. Yeah. That was amazing. I bet it did taste. Yeah. That thing did have like a Reese's pieces in it. I mean, it tastes amazing, mm. but I I've been there before too, where I've really built these things up to just be so glorious in my head. And then unfortunately, once I actually get to that experience, it is underwhelming. What about it? Like a turkey drumstick? Yeah, but I'm just, I'm not like (laughs) frothing over it. I'm just like, I know that's going to taste good, but I'm not like, you know, fantasizing about turkey drumsticks. Anyway, guys. At least on the podcast, you're not. There we go. Okay. Anyway, Jack, what we always finish on is one thing we learned this week. So what'd you learn? So I learned that we have this cool mic for our camera. It's a special camera for a mic. It's called a Rode mic. Mm -hmm. And today we were filming a reel that we had a lot of fun filming. And the reel will definitely be out by the time this goes live. So definitely check it out. We have a very special guest featuring on the reel. And I learned that you can actually plug in the mic to the iPhone, which we didn't, we weren't able to do that today because we need a special adapter. But from our next reel, we're going to be able to do that, which is really neat because the iPhone camera is just so amazing now that you can just film everything on it. Like people vlog for YouTube using their iPhone. So what we can, and the thing that's always held us back is the audio for the for the iPhone is that like if you film in a room or if you film with extra noise, like a car going past, it's, it's very annoying. But with the special mic, like what we can do now is is set up our phone on a tripod, put the mic on, and now we can start to even like record our podcast because mm-hmm. it's so much easier to just film it on the iPhone and like post it as an IGTV. So I'm looking forward to having that door open now with the mic. 
Yeah, absolutely. What a great little discovery there. And guys, yes, yeah, go check out that funny little reel. We definitely on TBD. Yeah. Uh, let us know. Do you share our same sense of humor? <laughs> yeah. Great. What did you learn? Well, I learned this week that not all hope is lost because we do have a border collie. His name is Boston. He was born almost a year ago, so he's coming up on almost 11 months old now. And it's around that 11th month old uh, age where they actually recommend that male border collies, that's when they should get desexed. But I've kind of been waiting this whole time because, you know, once male border collies, they actually start to mature, they'll start to lift their leg when they go pee. And like, Boston just wasn't doing it. You know, we all, we, we take them on walks. He's an and, young chap. <laughs> but we take them on walks. And he was always just doing the like, just like a female dog would do Swat. or like, like a horse, you know, like spread the legs and pee. And I'm like, come I don't on, think horses man. horses pee like that. Well, they definitely don't lift their legs. No, well, they don't squat. Yeah, but they stretch it out. Right. Anyway, <laughs> Boston, he wasn't, he wasn't lifting his leg. And I'm like, come on, man. You know, like, I know you can do this. Uh, like, I don't have a kid, obviously. So this is like the most maternal I've ever felt. Anyway, <laughs> the first day of spring. So the first of September. So maybe this actually was over a week ago. Anyway, out on the walk for a park, right? Boston goes up to a tree, lifts that leg, pees right on it. I've never been so happy. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he did it. Like, I was like, Jack, did you see it? And then he did it again. And yeah, now it's just the norm. But anyway. Sometimes Sam gets in the way there. <laughs> this morning. <laughs> that's what she gets for sniffing junk. <laughs> you get pee in the face. <laughs> but anyway, not all hope is lost. We do have a dog who has matured and he does need to get desex in. So anyway, that was like, that was kind of exciting for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Well, upon that revelation, we'll end the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, Please remember to repost it onto your social media. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And we'll see you next week.